morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And right after I get done preaching, we're going to have three people getting baptized, so you want to stay and witness uh, their testimonies. Testimonies are always exciting to hear, because then you know that God is working in people's lives still. Uh, Even though you may be a Christian for a long time, God's still working uh, and saving people. And um, so continue to pray for them as they prepare for that. Let's pray. Father, this morning as I come before you with the word of God, I pray, Lord, that you would Show us from the Word of God today uh, about how, how we can examine ourselves, that we may love you more, that we may give ourselves more over to your service, that we would think uh, not so much of ourselves but of other people. I pray, Lord, you would make us people like what we're going to see in Scripture And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to exemplify some of the characteristics that are found uh, in this particular woman in Scripture. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll be looking at this uh, passage today, and let me just bring you up to speed. Uh, Mark chapter 14 is actually a transition chapter, which really brings us into the third and last part of this gospel, it also moves us uh, further into the passion narrative, uh, the last phase of it, actually. Part one of Mark was uh, the coming and ministry of the servant Jesus Christ. That's, that was from chapter one to chapter eight. And then a continuation of the ministry of the servant Jesus Christ from chapter eight to chapter 13, the last verse And then, of course, this last part of the Passion Week moves us rapidly into the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which focuses our attention on the self-sacrifice of the servant, which is coming after this. But before we get there, we see this particular uh, event that happens right before uh, Jesus actually gets arrested, Um, according to to each of the four written records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus repeatedly talked about being on a rescue mission. Even as his popularity began to worry the religious leaders of Israel, he talked repeatedly about going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer and die. His followers found these predictions unthinkable, And so what day is it in the Passion Week in our text? According to our text, it's still Tuesday of the Passion Week. It's been a long, long Tuesday. Uh, And of course, it's now going to tell us what lies ahead. In verse number one, if you notice, it says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Now that tells us something. That tells us two days away would be, uh, of course, from this day would be Thursday, 
right? So now it's still late on Tuesday. The actual Passover feast and the eating of the Passover land were to be celebrated by all the Jews. So that means the uh, Jews from all over the place are coming to Jerusalem. Uh, And remember, what they had to do is they had to take a one-year-old unblemished male lamb or goat uh, and ritually sacrifice it in the temple on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, which was really Thursday on the 14th of either March or April of our the way we name our months, uh, and of course, eaten after sunset on the 15th of Nisan would be the Passover meal. So the meals were to be eaten in family gatherings and in private homes. I'll look more about this uh, day of uh, the Passover next time I preach. But today, we want to look in our text. Uh, today, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, but his plan goes far beyond just celebrating the fast Passover feast. Also, the judicial and sacred ruling body of Israel is also present for the Passover, and their plans as well includes much more than just the Passover celebration. So in our passage this morning, today there are really three responses to Jesus. These are really... uh, put in contrast to one another. And in the middle of the story, there is also an extraordinary act of love towards Jesus. And it's interesting that this particular event happens the day before Jesus is going to be arrested. So that means this brings us into Wednesday. Now, Wednesday, it seems, is is a day of rest for the disciples and for Jesus. So the first act is an act of deceitful treachery from the high ruling body of Israel who showed themselves to be in the inner circle religiously, but by their deeds denied any attachment to Jesus. So here we can see the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel, the High ruling class in Israel was called the Sanhedrin. It was a body of 70 men. Uh, and, of course, those men would be part of the chief priests, uh, the scribes, um, and other religious, uh, pers- religious persons that would be a part of that. So the Sanhedrin, they were present for the Passover activities, which included plotting Jesus' death. Now, notice verse number 1. It says, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So that means that the chief priests, the scribes, this high ruling class, religious class in Israel, who really had political clout too, had to meet in order to plan how to deal with Jesus when he comes to the Passover feast. So this meeting, we know from other Gospels, took place in a private hall, the private hall of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they met together in order to keep the plans secret. Uh, And it was agreed upon 
in this body that Jesus must be killed. There was no way around it at this point. Remember, this is the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. Uh, They have been observing him, watching him all along, and they have concluded that he must be killed. Now, in verse number one, it says that there's a, a ways and means for their plans to seize Jesus. Number one, it would be uh, done in an underhanded manner. The word there is by stealth, all right? As secret as possible, as shifty as it can be, they were going to plot to get a hold of Jesus. Now, that is really, it means that it's not going to be done in a straightforward, honest, open manner. It's going to be done in a very crafty manner. Also, it's not to be done on the festival day because the crowds admired Jesus. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, approximately 256,500 lambs were slain during Passover. And, of course, one lamb could represent 10 people which means that Jerusalem could have had up to 3 million pilgrims present for the Passover feast. And, of course, there was an added attraction in Jerusalem. Jesus was there, and everybody knew it. Everybody wanted to know what was going on. So who knew? We we could never calculate how many people were actually in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem just to get a glimpse of Jesus and his disciples. And so... The Sanhedrin, of course, feared the crowd's response if they were to publicly arrest him. And so, and of course, crucifixion and death were something that they haven't really thought exactly how that was going to take place. But surely it would cause a riot. So they decided not to do it publicly, but very privately. And if you notice in verse number two, it says, for they were saying not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they had to be as sneaky and sly as possible, and they were good at it. They were very good at it. It's funny how religious people are good at those kind of things. And uh, I don't like to consider myself religious because you learn how to get around things that you probably shouldn't get around. And So that is the first act against Jesus. They wanted to kill him. But in the middle of the the person that's going to come last is this woman. There's a second act uh, of generosity from a woman among the outside crowd who showed that she was really an insider and was really a follower of Jesus Christ. And I noticed in verse number three, it says, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper, And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, this this is is what is happening here. Most likely, Jesus and his disciples are uh, taking Wednesday as a time of refreshment, eating, relaxing, fellowshipping, and it says right in Scripture they were in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we don't really know anything about this particular 
uh, person. But obviously, Simon was healed by Jesus of leprosy, or they would not have been meeting at his home, fellowshipping, and especially eating together. They wouldn't be doing that at all. So that's what they were doing. Bethany was a village about two miles from Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And so if you noticed in our reading what happens, this woman takes this uh, container of uh, very costly perfume uh, and she pours, breaks it in and then pours it over his head. Now, this was a vial made of really semi-transparent stone which was so arranged that a sea, it was sealed up at the neck and of the vial and had to be broken to get at its contents. Now, all the contents had to be used once it was broken because you couldn't, you couldn't seal it back up again. The ointment was from the nard plant. Uh, actually, it grows in India. It was an Indian herb. Uh, and it, it was kind of a, a leafy thing that they squeezed out the, the particular uh, stuff, and they it, very costly, very expensive, and it was, was, it was like oily, but it would not leave an oil an oily stain. But it did leave a very lovely odor, similar really to our modern-day perfumes. They say that it evap- evaporated very quickly. Now, Mark doesn't name this woman. The Gospel of John and Luke point this woman to be Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, where it tells us in in John, uh, if you if you care to turn there, it's John twelve verse one and one through three. Again, the same exact situation where Jesus is uh, there now relaxing, and it says in John chapter twelve verse one, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And verse number 3 of John 12, it says, Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, that's who John identifies as uh, Mary. Now, some people say that possibly Mary could be the Mary of Luke 7, where um, she was the Mary who was one time a harlot because a same, a different situation, but uh, the same kind of thing happened when uh, some Pharisees were, Jesus was visiting in that, the home of uh, Pharisees, and this woman came in, and she did the same thing. She took an alabaster vial of perfume, she broke it, and she poured it on his feet, and she was crying. And then the Pharisees said, uh, now, who had been invited, if this man were a prophet, he would know who or what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And of course, Jesus gives this story about saying, listen, whoever sins the greatest uh, or who sins least 
than someone who had sinned greater than them, who would love more? And the disciple says, well, the person who sinned more would love more if they realized they were going to be forgiven. And he says, that's right. That's, the, that's, that's, what, uh, that's a correct answer. And so the Bible goes on to say that uh, you didn't, Jesus says to them, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now, if Mary, we're not, we can't be sure about that. If Mary is the harlot of Luke 7, it would explain where she obtained such an expensive container of perfume It would be from her lucrative past sinful lifestyle. However, I think that is unlikely. Instead, some have suggested, which I think is the correct suggestion, that this woman, women actually in general, were by and large excluded from careers that afforded the possibility of earning such wages or procuring objects of such value. The nard most likely was very probably a family heirloom, in which case it, was, it possessed a sentimental value in addition to a monetary value. So see, Mark, in Mark, she freely spent her money in order to honor Jesus. See, she poured the expensive ointment over Jesus' head. John says that she also anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped the excess with her hair. Now, that's what happened. Now, there's responses to that. And here is the first response to that particular action that this woman performed to Jesus. Now, notice in verse 4 and 5, some, of course, responded to this act of generosity totally with indignation. It says in verse number 4, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, right? Well, a noble observation. Now, for your information, the denarius was a normal day's wage in Palestine. Now, if you do the math, it says... Uh, in Scripture, that uh, it was sold for over 300 denarii. All right, that, that means that uh, it was equivalent to one year's wages. Now, just imagine yourself, um, that's a lot of moolah, in other words. Imagine spending a whole year's wage on one bottle of perfume and then using it up in a moment. Now, you, you and I would think, you know what, that seems like a waste, right? And so it says here that some were indignantly marking to, remarking to one another. Now, Mark, again, does not give us the name of the person, not right here, who has instigated this incident. See, the sum to make these marks against these remarks against this woman, the reason why is because the focus of our text 
is to be on the generous act of the woman towards Jesus. In other words, Mark is actually using what they call a a chiasmus structure in here, uh, that there's a story, and then there's another one in the middle, and then there's another one at the end, and the one in the middle is where everything is focusing on. So this is the one in the middle, the one with the woman. So that's the center of the literary unit, and it builds towards a climax. Now, we know from the Gospel of John that it was Judas who instigated the others. It tells us in John, but Judas, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? So Judas uncorked his vial of poison by spreading the odor of indignation, which spilled over onto the other disciples. And Judas got the others to see it his way concerning this act. He got to get them to see that this is excess. This is a terrible waste of financial resources. It could have been sold for a large amount of money, and it could have been used to relieve many poor people, a multitude of poor people. So you could almost hear the other disciples say, yeah, you're right, that woman, her foolish, wasteful act. So Judas, with the others, began snorting at her. Actually, the very word here uh, in the Greek means to flare the nostrils with anger that they looked, uh, the disciples looked at her and they were persuaded uh, that she was wrong in the wrong and began to treat her in a harsh way. At the end of verse number five, it says, and they were scolding her. That's how it's translated here. They were scolding her. See, they demeaned the woman and her gift. Judas had managed to hide his evil motive by covering it with generosity. See, Judas already made his decision about Jesus. So he sees no value at all in Mary's action towards honoring Jesus. Judas voices his view of what should have been done uh, by expressing his charitable desire to supply the poor. So John's gospel, again, exposes the evil character of Judas and what he really loved by recording this. It says, now... He said, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. In other words, Judas was motivated partly by money. He had, he was was a thief. He stealed. That's what he loved. He loved that more than he loved Jesus, all right? So that is the first response. Well, we have another response in Scripture, and that's the response of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In verse 6 through 9 of Mark chapter 14, Jesus responds to this act of generosity toward him with acceptance and also praise. So now he looks at it in a completely different way. So Jesus actually defends the woman, 
and puts those speaking against her in their place and to honor Jesus in this extravagant way was not a waste. Not at all. Verse number 6 says, But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. See, she has done a good deed to me. So let's stop for a minute and, and really examine the kind of deed she had done publicly to Jesus. There are, there's, there's five observations about this extraordinary act of love that I think that we can learn from. I think the first thing is when it, you and I, in relationship to Jesus, and her in relationship to Jesus, apart from anyone else who was looking on, her love to Jesus had an extravagance connected to her, to her, her act. It says there in verse number three that she took this uh, costly perfume that she was saving and she broke the vial and poured it over her, his head. That she performed an act of worshipful, sacrificial, uh, extravagant love toward Jesus. And according to Scripture, Anointing the head was a royal act, both for kings and high priests, of, Jesus, of, of which Jesus was both. And they were anointed for their office in that way, where the oil was poured upon their head. And actually, our new president quoted from Psalms saying that it's beautiful when God's people dwell together in unity, right? Remember that? If you listen to his... Uh, speech on Inauguration Day. And, of course, that's from the passage where it says when the oil is poured over the head of the high priest and it drips down towards him, that's where it says it is good to see uh, when God's people dwell together in unity. It's a picture of unity also. So, see, her act, she wanted everyone to know the inestimable value she placed on Jesus, which no one else did, not even the disciples did. The ruling class, of course, wants to kill him. Judas loved money, didn't love Christ. And here is this woman, this unnamed woman that Mark wants to keep unnamed. She now treats Jesus with such incredible value that everything else seems to pale and just kind of go into the background. Now, in my reading, I came across an interesting question and a story. The question was this. Have you, in your life, as a follower of King Jesus, ever made a sacrifice of extravagant love towards him and did it in a public way? Now, however that would look, that could be many things could happen, but have you ever done that? I thought that was a real good question. That's a question for us today. The story was this. It was was a story about a couch that a man related a time when he served in a church where the student building was filled with old, worn, and ratty couches. Sweet folks in the church had brought new couches for their home, actually for their homes, and and so they donated their old, worn couches to the church and in the process got a tax break and felt good that they had 
done something noble. But had they really? See, the man confessed that he was one of the, it was one of his couches that ended up in the youth center and had been given by him. And he thought to himself, my couch was no longer worthy of being in my house, but it was good enough for Jesus. See, the moral of the story would be, sadly, we are good at giving Jesus our leftovers and our hand-me-downs. We fall woefully short of acts of worshipful, sacrificial, and extravagant love to Jesus. Why is that, I asked myself. Well, maybe it's because we enjoy a comfortable, convenient, kind of moderate Christianity. Let's keep things even. Let's not get too excited about things. We don't want to be labeled as some kind of fanatic or someone who is really out there on the limb loving Jesus Christ and always talking about Jesus Christ and always bringing him up in every conversation and always talking about the Bible. And Now, we wouldn't want to do that, would we? How can that change in relation to the time that we give the Lord, the service that we give the Lord, the use of our talents and our spiritual gifts that we give the Lord? It has to change, in other words. Remember, this particular narrative is right before, two days before Jesus displays to the world the greatest demonstration of love towards sinful humanity. She is expressing her extravagant love towards someone who has been extremely good and kind to her. And she is giving that back to him. But she's also expressing her gratitude for being forgiven of her sins. Of being able to have a relationship with Jesus. So the first observation, I think, is something we need to consider. Have we? Will we ever? have an act of extravagant love that we act just for Jesus publicly towards someone else. I pray that we're guilty of that someday. I really I really do. Because you know what? That's what it's all about. You want to have victory over your sin? Love Jesus. You want to love people more? Love Jesus. You want to have a better marriage? Love Jesus Christ. You want to be influential in your family and society? Love Christ. You will be. You will be because there's a, there's a, that is a kind of love that you'll find nowhere else except in a disciple's relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll find it nowhere else on this side of eternity. And so who's going to express those kind of actions except his disciples? A second observation about her love is this. In verse 6 and 7, her love to Jesus had an excellence connected to it. If you notice what it says in verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Actually, that word good is actually a word that means beautiful or noble or praiseworthy. What an unexpected and exemplary act of sacrificial generosity, an act that superseded anything that was reported among any of Jesus' disciples at any time in his ministry of his inner circle. And of course, 
Jesus adds in verse number 7, for you always have the poor with you whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Of course, that was a rebuke right against Judas and against his disciples because his disciples are on Judas' side right now. They're not on Jesus' side. And so he is rebuking them by saying that, that Jesus' close disciples did not realize that Jesus would be with them for only a short period of time and the disciples would have many opportunities for ministry to the poor, but will have very few opportunities left for doing anything special for their Lord. See, give to the poor, but first worship the Lord. It's always first the Lord and then do something. So see, there's an excellence about her love that cannot go unnoticed, that she definitely put Christ First, there's a third observation in verse number eight. Her love to Jesus had an extraordinary impulse connected to it. Notice what it says in verse number eight. She has done what she could. That's an incredible statement in this passage. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So, see, what the woman was able to do, she did. Can we say that about ourselves? Are you doing what you're able to do, all right? If we, if, if we, if we don't, then we're, we're really kind of fooling ourselves as Christians. See, she sensed this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do something. You know, we don't have many lives, do we? We have one life. We have one shot to live right. That's it. Matter of fact, we only have one shot to die, too. So if you're going to die, do well. Die well, but if you're going to die well, then you have to live well, right? All right, so the thing is that we have one shot, one shot at this. Once you become believers and you begin to understand this from Scripture, you have one shot to have an extraordinary impulse connected to the love that you have for Jesus. And she sees that one impulse See, Mary was ready, she saw, she embraced the opportunity, and she went to the limit of her ability because she loved Christ. She gave the Lord her very best. That's what she did. Now, if the Secret Service knocked on your door and said to you, the President of the United States will dine with you in your home this same time next week, what would you do? Now, chances are you would not serve the president last night's leftovers on paper plates, all right? Neither would you order out for fast food. Rather, you would pull out all the stops. You would want everything to be cleaned, everything to be put in order. You would make an effort to find find out what, the president liked to eat, and you would put out your best china, so on and so forth, right? In other words, you would give it your best shot. You would be able to, you would do as as much as you could do to make that night a very memorable night. That's what you do. 
Now, as you consider your life of faith, are you giving Christ your very best? If you sat down and asked yourself, am I living my life for Christ my very best? And you are completely honest with yourself, what would the answer be? What would the answer be? Now, you would have to check your words that you say. You would have to check your attitude. You would have to check your, your, actually your checkbook to see what you're spending your money on, right? Because you can tell a lot about somebody by looking at what they spend their money on, how much they spend it on, right? You can have to check on how much time you do doing what you do, right? Where do I spend my time? How much time do I give to the Lord, to the church, to the ministry, to service, to using my spiritual gifts? And then you would have to, after honestly evaluating self, yourself, answer, listen, am I giving my very best to Jesus? Because you know what? This woman did, and she's our example. There is a fourth observation, and that her love to Jesus had an insightful understanding connected to it. Look at verse number 7. Uh, well, no, number seven, it says that at the end of the verse, it says, but you do not always have me, remember? And then in verse number eight, it says, and she has done this, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So this means that this woman has been listening to Jesus. She's been logging in his messages She's been paying attention to the word of God. She believed Jesus. Isn't that novel? Therefore, she was spiritually awake. The woman understood from Jesus' messages that Jesus had a short time left. And he was going to be treated wrongly and suffer. He was going to be Killed, so she prepared his body in advance for burial. Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 12 gives us the sense that she kept this expensive ointment for the time of Jesus' entombment. That Jesus over and over again announced his death and crucifixion. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. All through his three-year ministry, what he's been telling his disciples is, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day. That's what he kept telling you, but they didn't believe him. They weren't ready for that. But this woman developed a love for Christ and an understanding about what he was going to do that no one else did, that this woman believed Jesus' words and prepared for the inevitable. What was the inevitable? He was going to go and die. So what did she do? In her worshipful act and sacrificial and extravagant act towards him, she takes this expensive perfume and pours it on him and anoints his body, making it ready for burial. That's what she does. There's a, there's a fifth observation, and an unexpected one, from, actually from her vantage point, that this woman's act of worship and extravagant love to Jesus had an unexpected result to it. Look at verse number 9. In other words, listen to this. Listen. Whatever one does for Jesus will not be forgotten by Jesus. 
whatever you do for Jesus will not be forgotten by him. Now look what it says in verse number 9. It says, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. See, Jesus praises her for her act and good deed toward him. In fact, what you have done to me will be well known to the world. In that it is mentioned alongside the worldwide preaching of the gospel. I'm doing it this morning. I'm doing it this morning. This woman is being put on a, in a place of honor by Jesus, and I'm doing it right here before you, just like the scripture says. See, he blessed, her blessed memory kept alive and will never be forgotten. And then also her sweet odor of her perfume has literally filled the world because this is how you want to act. This is the kind of disciple that you want to be, this kind, the kind that sits at Jesus' feet, listens to his word, follows him, and loves him, and now through her act communicates the gospel to everyone that would ever hear it. See, so her deed is connected to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's how people get saved. So she gave up, she, she gave uh, up a memorable, she gives us a memorable example on how to act toward Jesus with our once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we have. So this woman is held up in contrast to the self-righteous religious leaders and also to the treacherous actions, the traitorous actions of Judas. And he's the last one mentioned here just shortly. Here's the last act in our passage. It is the act, it's an act of betrayal from a man in the inside crowd who showed himself to actually be on the outside crowd. All right, so what, is, what happens here is that this, the smell of sweet perfume changes into the toxic fumes of deceit and betrayal. Verse number 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. Now, What's interesting here is that it was not the chief priests and the scribes and the religious body that actually figured out how to get to Jesus. It was one of Jesus' own disciples that betrayed him. And the betrayal is is the highest betrayal ever. In fact, one of the definitions of Judas in the, uh, the Webster's College Dictionary reads like this, traitor especially one who betrays under the guise of friendship. Now, Luke, I mean, Mark doesn't mention it, or yes, it does mention it, that he's going to pray, be, be, uh, betray Jesus with a what? A kiss. In fact, after coming, it says, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, verse 44 and 45 of chapter 14, and he kissed him. That was the signal to the high priest 
and to the scribes that he's the one, take him. So see, Judas was not listening to Jesus. He was, not, he was listening to the voice of his own greed and traitorous heart, which really leaned toward siding with the religious establishment. Judas willfully purposed and planned uh, his own handing Jesus over to these bloodthirsty religious hypocrites by giving away his private movements and the locations of where Jesus is going to be. So see, the Sanhedrin was overjoyed by the proposal of Judas, it says in verse 11, and they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. He would find that opportune time, but what did he love the most? He loved the money. See, this, they, they really surely thought, finally, one of Jesus' close disciples sees what we see and is willing to put a stop to this madman who is moving the whole nation away from our control. That's how they thought of Jesus. Judas handed him over. Yes, this man who was numbered with the 12, destined to an apostolic throne, became an an emissary of Satan. For it tells us in Luke, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12. So his covetousness, 30 pieces of silver, that's the price of a slave. It came nowhere near what it cost that woman to give up that costly perfume. She understood the value of Jesus. Judas did not, and he spent his whole ministry with Jesus. And yet he did not get it. His selfishness, his ambition, his jealousy equaled betrayal. So the results will be his cursed memory will be kept alive. Everybody knows about Judas. Matter of fact, you do not name people Judas. You name dogs Judas. You name snakes Judas. But you don't name people Judas, and at least you better not. I'm sure people have. But I'm sure if they've done that, I'm just wondering from what context they did that. Probably being ignorant of what the Bible says about him. But nonetheless, most people know Judas is someone you don't want to be like. But you know what? I, think, I thought about that for a moment. How much are we like the woman, and how much would we, we would be like Judas? How much do we actually betray Jesus by how we live our life? I think that's, that's a, good, a good, actually, observation to have in this context. For this is what, listen to what it says in, in Matthew about Judas. It says, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had, con- had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See that to yourself. And then it says, and he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary 
and departed. And when he went away, he hanged himself. He committed suicide. So one action toward Jesus will tell if you love him or not. The only worthy action is imitating this woman with an act of extraordinary love. That's the only act. That's the only one that Jesus honors. That's the only one that Jesus prays. So you got you to gotta look at the text and say, well, where do I fit in all that? Am I a, a real genuine follower of Jesus where uh, it shows every day that I'm growing in the love of Jesus Christ, or am I more on the side of betraying Jesus by the way I live and by the double life I've had and by the thoughts that I like to think about in my mind and by where I spend my money and where I spend my time. And all those things will show where you're at. See, if we have disciples like this, everything will get done. I just pray that you would be one and I would be one, and that we can exemplify the character of this woman, and we can, by our life, preach the gospel to those who need it. By the way we live and talk, and by what we say and do, and where we go, and how we spend our money. And in the, the end, we will be glad about it, because we will have taken the one chance that we have and used it in the right way. So we will not only live right, we will end up dying right. And that's the only way to live your life. And all God's people said, what? Okay, the people that are being baptized, you can be dismissed to the back. Let me have a word of prayer. And then um, we'll sing some songs. They'll prepare. And then I want you to just take a witness these baptisms. I pray that if you don't know Christ, that you may come to know him and that someday you walk in the waters of baptism also. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning I do thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, anytime we come to a passage of scripture like this, we are convicted in our heart. We realize, Lord, that we spend too much time and too much effort in places that we should not. So I pray, Lord, that you would every day set us apart to and sanctify us. Put on our mind every day that we would put ourselves up against the example of this woman and that, Lord, we can become more like her. For we know, Lord, that that is what you're pleased with. That is what honors you. That is what gives, gives opportunities for more gospel witness. And I pray, Lord Jesus, when we fail, show us that we failed. And when we've sinned and betrayed you, Lord, I pray that we would quickly come to you in repentance and we would ask your forgiveness and you would use that moment in a way that we would develop a hatred towards even being like that anymore. So I pray, Lord, the observations of her love would be observations that are growing in our own life. And Lord, please do that so your name could be praised and so the gospel can continue to go out 
and your work and service would be done by your disciples. And I pray this this morning in your name. Amen. Thank you. We're going to sing some songs as we stall.